welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Sagans, and I hope you're having a fantastic day. I am so excited about this interview with my good friend, Chris Shembra. I love Chris. He is my brother from another mother. <laughs> Chris is considered to be the gratitude guru by USA Today. He is the founder of the 747 Club and the 747 Gratitude Experience, which is an evidence-based framework that helps leaders build community and strengthen relationships. He's the best-selling author of Gratitude and Pasta, The Secret Sauce for Human Connection, chronicling his adventures as one of the most sought-after dinner hosts in the world. Forbes ranked his book number two of the 2020 How to Create Human Connection, and USA Today calls him the gratitude guru, as I stated earlier. I met Chris through Ben Wright, who was uh, my third guest, I believe, on Reflect Forward. Uh, ben and I are in the same YPO chapter, and he said, you have to meet Chris. And he was right. Chris and I hit it off immediately. Chris is a wild man. This is a wild podcast. It's explicit. I'm just going to tell you now. Chris is very raw and vulnerable and shares the deepest part of his soul and talks about how he has used gratitude to change his life as he works to become a less shitty human being every day, as he puts it. Chris came and did a gratitude experience for us at Stone Age, and it was remarkable. It was so rewarding and fun, and all of my employees left feeling so much better, so much happier, in such a much better place when they expressed gratitude. I highly recommend doing a gratitude experience. It's fantastic. All right, we need to jump into this interview because it's a wild one and you don't want to miss it. So hang tight and I'll be right back with Chris. All right, welcome back, everybody. I have my good friend Chris here, as you know. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're on Reflect Forward. I am. I'm just so excited to be talking about two things that I love, reflection and looking ahead with a swell gal. Carrie, you're an amazing gift to this world. Oh, I feel the same way about you. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> All right. So I have never met a guru until I met you. <laughs> How does it feel to be named the gratitude guru? You know, it's interesting. It's it's both gratifying and embarrassing. It, it's embarrassing that I let my ego get so involved and attached to something that provides self-entitlement. Right? In in the world, you know, I I was I was I I grew up in in a bubble. I'm sitting in a bubble uh, in my backyard in New York City. Literally, for those of you who aren't watching the video, I am in a bubble like they have at restaurants. I grew up in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And I, had, I was an only child, and my parents were very, very loving and very, very protective. And so they enabled me. They finished my homework for me. They did all these things for me. They gave me the the E for Effort Awards and the Enthusiasm Awards and all that crap that makes people soft as shit these days. And so I was, I was uh, entitled as a kid because I was told I was special. And that special 
uniqueness that we're all told makes us think that everybody's less thanks. I'm special and you're not, so I'm better. I'm entitled. Entitlement also shows up on the opposite side. You know, you could be a victim and you could be entitled as well because you think that nobody else has been through victim stuff and you're the only one who has, so woe is me. Nah, bullshit. We've all been through stuff. But so being called a title like that is uh, pretty embarrassing. But thank God that I have a, a powerful, to me, powerful gratitude practice. Because gratitude is the ultimate tool to develop humility and servant leadership. And so while you can bestow a title upon oneself, uh, you can also have the things that prohibit it from totally inflating the ego, which a little ego is good. But, um, you know, leadership is a, a balance between confidence and humility. So the guru gives me the confidence, and it reminds me to dive deeper into the humility part. Wow, oh, I love that. And I want to talk about gratitude and humility. But before we do that, I want to dive into your story a little bit. Mm -hmm. So like, like me, you're a boundary pusher and you overcame addiction. Mm -hmm. why, did, why did you feel the need to push boundaries? And how did this lead to your some of your self-destructive behaviors? Let's just jump in, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I I have a vivid memory at 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 the age of five. Um, you know, I, I would try to push things. I would try to touch things, whether it was in the cracker barrel and I was trying to get a piece of candy or it was uh, walking around the mall and trying to touch someone's food <laughs> at the food court. I was always trying to do something and. My parents, being very protective, they always told me no. And it made any kid want to rebel, right? There, there's a great story of how Shep Gordon, the famous music manager of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, sold out Wembley Arena by getting the parents to hate Alice Cooper so that the kids would buy whatever the parents hated, right? So, so I definitely grew up on that where instead of letting me fail and teaching me responsibility and ownership, they just said no and prevented me from going through the hard, the hard time myself. And, and so I think when, when, um, when I was five, you know, they got pretty scared of what I was capable of. You know, I was a ball of energy like you. I was questioning everything around me. And when you're not allowed to question things, you know, between the ages of three and five, Eric Erickson, who in 1958 wrote The Nine Stages of Psychosocial Development, he found that between the ages of three and five, if you're not allowed to let your curiosity fly, you, you are building some pretty bad stuff. And at the age of five, uh, they used to drive me up to this doctor, Dr. Cuisenberry in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And they used to run these tests on me. And at the end of it, they put the, me on these, you know, horse tranquilizers, this Adderall, this Concerta, this sustain release stuff. 
I was taking triple the normal dosage per day. So it really dumbed me down. It really prevented me from having these creative ideas, from being able to see in the periphery. And from the ages of 5 to, to the ages of 20, I was on those pills every day. And so that was my trauma. And so, so it ended up snowballing into destructive behavior. Into I was still not able to ask the curious questions I had been wanting to ask around sexuality, around friend groups, around values. And so then that bubbles up and, and you know, goes out into the world in a mess. And you talk, it, you describe it as like a hurricane, a, a hurricane inside of you. Mm. What, what was that like? You know, what, what did that feel like and, and how did it really manifest? Well, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't remember. I actually physically don't remember most of my childhood. I had a good one. I've seen the pictures. Thank God my mom has taken tens of thousands of photos. And we have an ongoing photo project of weaving through those photos to actually digitize them. So the hurricane comes from the unknown. The hurricane comes from not knowing what my destruction led to. The guilt, shame, regret of how did my actions affect others. And, you know, I, I, I gave my TED Talk, my first TED Talk, on the topic of, did you know this? Of course. Okay. Um, yeah. My first TED Talk was how hurricanes were Mother Nature's natural form of empathy. She rips through communities. She destroys communities. But then those communities come together and bond in the rebuild. And I'm grateful that I had hurricanes in my own personal life. Because it gave me the resilience and the self-confidence needed to know I can get through tough times again. Um, and so those hurricanes inside of me, I now work on with energy healers and cuddle therapists and psychedelics to remember my youth. It happened. I can't change it. But what I can do is change my perspective of it. Because the opposite of having it control me through post-traumatic stress is me being able to control it, which becomes post-traumatic growth. Yep. And do you feel like you can control the hurricane? Trauma doesn't occur from the event itself. Trauma occurs from your response to it. Mm -hmm. So I have to have... I forget what's on my arm. I got it tattooed on April 26, 2009. I think it's the serenity prayer. You might know that one. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I can't control my hurricanes. I can only control how I process them, give gratitude to them, and use them as fuel to do good. So you still have hurricanes that rage inside of you now? Yeah, they're the best part about myself. My God, you know, I, I, um, I, I'm still the guy, you know, I, I didn't sleep, I didn't sleep, uh, Sunday night, Monday night, probably slept about two hours each. You know, this is my, this is my life. I wake up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep. Brain runs wild, 
either with guilt, shame, regret, or hope for the future. These are all, you know, when you're presented with a mountain of opportunity, your brain uses it against you. Yeah. Uh, because to be presented with opportunity is to admit you don't already have enough. And what does that say about a person? And so these bad things, you know, I cut myself a couple weeks ago on purpose. You know, I do these things. I lash out to my girlfriend. Yeah, I'm a monster. I am a monster. I would not wish a lifetime alongside Chris to anybody. But those are the best parts about me too. Because we've all got those demons. And when you can actually communicate your demons with others... You create connection. Kurt Vonnegut proved it in the 1950s and 60s when he went out. He was a great uh, science fiction writer, a great scientific writer. And he went out to prove that there are actual things you should do in narrative storytelling to get an audience to fall in love with the protagonist, for the story to work. Mm-hmm. And one of the six of his favorite emotional arcs that he found is called the man in the hole principle you start a character up here and then you dig him down into here and the audience can relate and then you build him up to be the hero and so favorite parts about myself are when I can talk about that shit in the hole and connect with others who are in the hole at the same time Well, and being vulnerable and being able to share the dark parts of ourselves is such a good way to connect. It's, it's real, it's raw. And that's what people want. I think we are so used to building these personas thinking that I need to look this way and act this way and be this way. So people accept me and people don't, they want your messiness. (laughs) Maybe not all of your crazy messiness, but you know, at least some messiness. We I mean, the invention of social media leads to social comparison, competition, envy, jealousy, FOMO. The invention of filters makes people realize that they're not. Here's what happens. When someone in life posts a filtered photo to pretend like they have perfection... All we see is that we are sitting in our mess and we see, you know, hypothetical perfection. Mm -hmm. What's the problem with that is that we don't see the struggle that they had to go through just to pretend like they're perfect. So we compare our mess with their hypothetical perfection. That's envy. That's an ulcer. We got to do the opposite. We got to project our difficulties so that we give permission to others to communicate their difficulties so that we can inspire them to live a more authentic life where they don't have to put on all the makeup, where they don't have to put on all the the fancy wishy-washy. People don't want that. We're just beginning to realize that people don't want that. So hopefully there's a little bit of, you know, good that can come from that realization on a macro level. But we're getting sucked into stuff that we don't need to be sucked into. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. All right, so let's go back to your hurricane years. What's a relationship Mm. screwed up during that time? And did you use gratitude to mend it? Yes, tons of relationships I screwed up. But what one sticks out the most? The first one that came to mind is my friend Laura Stevens. She was new to our school. She was very pretty. 
I let me let me paint the scene. I was the quintessential tourist wrangler in my small town. I lived in a big house on the beach. I say that so I sound like a douchebag. I lived in a big house on the beach and I was the surfer and everybody would come over to the home and we'd go meet the tourist girls and we'd meet their parents and we'd point to the house and say, your girls are going to be in that house tonight. If they go missing, you'll know where to find us. So I was that prop. There were literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of girls. I didn't have sex with a single one of them. Everybody thought I did. But I was just a makeout bandit. All my other buddies were doing the fucking. And and I felt so weird about that. You know, I, I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I liked and what I didn't like. And I never hooked up with any locals because I didn't want the locals to know, oh, I'm the guy that doesn't fuck the girl. I'm the guy that won't drink the beer. I'm the guy who invites them over for pizza bagels and slushies. And there was this one girl, Laura, who was new to our group. And we, we, my mom rented a limo to go to some concert. And everybody was paired up. They got the girls and the boys. And I had my shot. She didn't like me. She didn't want to make out with me. Duh, we weren't compatible. But I spread gossip. I spread a rumor. And it was stupid as shit. It was stupid as shit. So I hope that I didn't cause her great pain in the community. Um, I don't even know how far the rumor went. I might even just be internalizing it all. Um, but ironically, now we're friends. Now we send her leads for her real estate company. You know? But I don't think we've ever really talked about it. And why not? One is that I could just be internalizing all this. I could yeah. not. I could be not remembering the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. In the right way. I could be making this up in my head. It might not have even occurred. <laughs> uh, but number two... You know, it, it's very hard to go apologize for something when that brings up old wounds for them. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. That's a really honest answer. Thank you. Thank you. I was a shitty dude. I was weird. I, I, was, such a, I was such a fake bitch. Like, I was, I was so... Um, I was like... I was all the parents' best friends. Right? I was be- better friends with the parents than the kids in my grade. I mean, not really. I had great friends growing up. Phenomenal friends. But I was a little kiss-ass. Right? I was the Eddie Cleaver. I was the put-on-the-smile, put-on-the-show, lead-the-spirit team, all that shit. But I was just, I was just weird. Um, what, what's great is that, you know, I think I've... I've um, I, I've been able to communicate that some of my weirdness, my insecurities, my self-perceived fear of being left out, 
is what ultimately led me to finding my true calling in life. So even that self-proclaimed victim, which is entitlement, as I said, that victim mindset led to something. Led to something so how, really good. Yeah, so how did you do that? How did you go from being a shitty person to being the the gratitude guru? I'm still a shitty person and I'll I'll, you know, I'll I'll be the first to admit I've I've probably got the worst gratitude habit. I outsource that shit. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, I definitely do not practice what I preach. I'm mean to my own girlfriend. I yell, kick and scream when I want attention. Like I'm a little fucking prick, you know? Um, but the story for the listeners, uh, you know, the story started in like July of 2015. Um, you know, if you had looked at my life, then I was in a different industry running a company in show business I had this guy, Tony, that I would spend 12 hours a day with seven days a week. He was 74. I was 24. Uh, we were just having the time of our lives. We were traveling around the world producing Broadway plays. Cool. We were fighting each other for women at the charity gala every night. We were working hard trying to sell tickets to our plays during the day. It was just life. Um... But then I went over to Italy, and we produced a Broadway play over there, and everything changed. I remember driving around. I mean, we had the cat's meow in Italy. We were there as guests of uh, the American government, with universities, with the military, with the people of Rome, with the Rome elite. It was all carte blanche. And I was driving around. I had a driver. Um, so I was driving around with our driver. And I was asking about his daughter. And he said uh, the daughter was working for the main promoter of the play over there. And he was he used to be Elizabeth Taylor's personal photographer for three decades. He knows some shit about life. And I, I asked Maurizio, you know, how she's liking being with Jenny Bozzacchi. And he said, you know, she's, she's, um, she's, she's learning a lot, but she's, she's living someone else's dream. And I said, Ooh, God, that hurts. So I got back to New York and I realized this ain't it. I was lonely, unfulfilled, disconnected, insecure. The last time I'd felt those four things at once was early twenties, suicide, depression, jail, rehab. I don't want to do that again. So I thought, what was it about Italy that actually changed my life? It wasn't the way they were walking or talking or living or loving. It's kind of what they ate. It's the way they ate their food. They made love to it. It encapsulated their soul. It made people cry. It was amazing. And so back home in my kitchen here in New York City, I figured I'd do the same. So I started playing around with different recipes accidentally created a pasta sauce recipe and figured I should probably feed it to people to see if it was even good or not. And that was it. And that's, so that's, that's how 747 Club was birthed? Yeah, we, you know, a ritual began. Night after night, week after week, month after month, we'd gather. And the people would come. They'd come with their bottle of wine We'd work together to create the meal. 
we'd have some really deep discussions and and they'd leave you know feeling pretty good and, and I felt good as well you know I'd watched a TED talk around that time by a guy named Johan Hari and in the TED talk he says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety it's human connection well I had it wrong my whole life you know, my greatest childhood insecurity is always being the last one called to the party. My invite is always somehow lost in the mail. Even two months ago, I didn't even get invited to my company off-site dinner. That <laughs> then I paid for. That's a whole nother thing. <laughs> that was the second time, September 15, 2016, I didn't get invited to my theater company's holiday off-site. I'm like, What? How did this happen? Twice. So, anyways, and we're a small team. You know that. So, yeah. it was freaking weird. Anyways, um, because of the dinner table, I could create the safe space for people to gather. And I really came alive. And I realized I'd do this for the rest of my life. But I realized it wasn't the pasta sauce that was doing the heavy lifting. It's what we talked about every dinner. You know, at that very first dinner, we asked a simple question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, that you've never thought to thank, who would that be? And we saw people come alive. They either told stories of people who had helped them, or they told stories of people that hurt them. Whether this was a mom that never loved them until they, the deathbed, or the, the, the dad that touched them, the stranger that saved them, the third grade teacher that invested them, that bad ex-boss, that ex-girlfriend that made them real. These were coming up. And it was groovy. We saw these people go on to take life-changing action. And I said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And so how did you come up with that question? Because it's a fascinating one. Yeah. You know... I, I don't know. You know, I, in May of, well, in May of 2015, just before these dinners started, we had, we had made a video, about a five and a half minute long video, uh, giving, so, interesting. Yeah, so, so. So in, in 2013, 2014, we were traveling around all these places on tour with this one play called The Little Flower. It's a one-man show about Fiorello LaGuardia, former mayor of New York City. And it, it was produced by me. It was acted by, directed by, written by this old guy, Tony, who was a big famous actor in his day. And so we rolled around to great acclaim and his brother sent us a poem one day it was written by A. Lawrence Vancourt it's called A Soldier Died Today and we'd read it during the Q&A of every show and one day this guy named Stephen Klaus came up and said we should turn this into a video so we said alright and we and we um, we launched that video on Memorial Day of 2015 when I had just gotten back from Italy and it was just before the dinners and the whole concept of the video was to give credit and thanks to veterans who never get that credit or thanks 
uh, to lower the suicide and depression rate with the PTSD. And so I guess, I guess that occurred, and then I just brought it into the dinners. So it kind of naturally morphed. I wanted to do dinners with Tony, but he kept saying no. And so then I just did them on my own, and I just thought about, I think it was just the perfect, the perfect moment. And so I can imagine that these dinners can be very emotional. So mm, do you mm-hmm. prep people for that? Like, you know, you're going to cry. <laughs> you're going to come to my house and cry. Yeah, just, just come ready to connect. Yeah. Come ready to have a great shared group experience. Of course, you know, once we started doing hundreds of them, people, the, the word got out. Um, you know, now, now people kind of know. Um, now they crave it. I mean, I, I remember in those early days when we were really getting our footing, you know, we, we would text people saying, hey, we just had someone cancel tonight. You want to come? And these people would be on the way to JFK to take some international trip, and they'd cancel their trip. Oh, it was like this culty little thing that everybody wanted an invite to. It was great. It was unbelievable. Um, and then companies started calling, and that's when it really took off. Because then we didn't have to worry about bringing the people. Then we just showed up and did our craft. And that's when I really fell in love. I mean, my golly. You're telling me someone's going to think of who to bring, and they're going to pay us a lot of money, and all we got to do is show up and perform? Woohoo! I could finally be the star. You know, I stood in the wings of the theater for five years, watching all these swell individuals walk on stage and get the bouquets of flowers. Now I get to do it. But I get to be the director, the choreographer, the puppeteer, and the people get to be the star because they get to answer that question with each other. They're the actors. Yeah, it was such a great experience taking Stone Age through it with you. Um, We still have people talking about uh, the gratitude experience. And then of course we've taken it and built upon that, you know, one-on-one very small group discussion of connecting and talking about gratitude and, and talking about the hard stuff. And you're right. You were this great director and, and it was, it was so much fun because you got bounced from you and your personality and leading us through it to these really like intimate and meaningful conversations and then back and having fun again it really was a fantastic performance, but it was so much more meaningful than to a Broadway play mm-hmm. because our colleagues got to connect with each other. So I can imagine how gratifying that is to create those kinds of experiences for people. Totally. Totally. I'm, I'm, what have you guys done to uh, ha- have you challenged them to write gratitude letters or... Um, call a certain number of people what have they reacted the most to yeah so it's the the reach out to one person that you haven't talked to in a while uh and see how they're doing and Mm -hmm. then at all of our company meetings like this morning we had one and we started off with um understanding our heritage our heritage where we come from uh because i think that you know we don't know enough about our backgrounds and really how diverse we are and to connect on that way. And so it was, what's one of your family traditions? What's your heritage and what are you most grateful 
um, about coming from, you know, your family lineage. And mm. we spent recording on the company meeting, having that conversation. And it was all inspired by, by your gratitude experience. I uh, love it. People were like, it. no, let, let me want to go back into the breakout rooms. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring the people what they want. I know, I know. I'll give them more of it. That's for sure. So what do you think business leaders get wrong about gratitude, especially since you're going into companies and seeing this front yeah. and center? I mean, they think that gratitude makes them weak, right? Leaders are um, programmed to believe that they have to be the smartest person in the room. They have to be seen as the person who can do it on their own. They got to treat their employees like those employees are lucky to work there to learn from this leader, right? They have to have all those answers. And so the minute that you flip that script and acknowledge that you're not a self-made person, that you're not the smartest person in the room, that you have this massive dose of humility, and you're there to learn and empower others, well, leaders look at that and be like, uh, that means I'm dispensable. And... People are going to take advantage of me. People also think gratitude is awkward. Like, what? I got to reach out to someone I haven't talked to in two years, Carrie? That's awkward. Most people underestimate the impact that gratitude has on the recipient and overestimate their contributions in a situation. Jonas Salk is a famous example of this. He invented the polio vaccine. But he had a team. And you know what? He went around the country speaking at all these events. And all he ever talked about was himself. And never gave gratitude to his team. So what happened was, he was actually banned from the Science Hall of Fame. He, his work was actually almost invalidated later in his career. He tried to do cancer and AIDS. Didn't work out. Nobody wanted him around because he was an ingrateful, ungrateful motherfucker. The Tamil culture in South India actually has a word for those type of people. They don't have a word for gratitude. They have a word if you lack gratitude. It's called Nandri Ketanai, gratitude lacking dog. So all these leaders are, you know, fearful of being taken advantage of if they're seen as admitting that they need help from others. And it's toxic. You know, we, we had Abby Wambach speak at one of our experiences the other day. And she told a story of how someone in her audience at some speech asked her, well, said, Abby, I'm a big fan of yours. And I watch your YouTube videos every day. You know, she's the most prolific goal scorer in U.S. women's soccer history. She's got some YouTube videos. And this girl said, asked, Abby, you're always pointing somewhere after you score a goal. Where are you pointing? And she says, well, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not, I did not get here on my own. I didn't even score that goal on my own. I'm pointing to the person who passed me the ball. And that is how you build connection. That's how you inspire teams to want to perform to be highly engaged, to be innovative as hell, is when you know that they're 
contributions are being valued and seen and heard. Yeah. That recognition moves mountains. Yeah, I agree with you. I was just at, recently asked, you know, how do you, how did you become a CEO so young and be successful? And I was like, well, I had no idea what I was doing. Like literally, I had no idea what I was doing when I started at Stone Age. I was, you know, two months out of leaving Austin and, and leaving a life of addiction and throwing myself into figuring it out, figuring out how to like, you know, be a less shitty human being. And I just asked questions. I was had a, a, this amazing team. They'd been at the, for the company for many, many years. And so I just thought, well, I'm just going to ask them what they think we should do. And it was amazing how well it works. All of a sudden, it was like, well, let's go fix that problem. What do you think we should do? And they would tell me, and then I would help them do it. And so I'm so incredibly grateful for that experience. And being such a mess in my life and like surrendering to the mess and going, I'm going to quit pretending to to be somebody I'm not Yeah. and walking in there and saying like, I don't know how to do this. Uh, What do you think was very humbling. um, But the most empowering thing that I did, and it was, I'm so glad I learned it at such a young age. And so early in my leadership journey, because now all I do is ask questions like, what do you think we should do? Yeah. And, uh, and it, it really is such an amazing way to build a team and to show you're grateful and to empower your employees. You know, it's interesting. You, you use the term, um, you know, you were just trying to figure out how to be a less shitty person. Look, let's be honest. That's the goal in life is to suck less at something tomorrow. That's it. Like, we're never going to hit perfection. You could literally make $10 million a year in Major League Baseball only hitting 3 out of 10. You just have to suck less tomorrow at whatever the fuck you dedicate your life to. Right? Odds are, if you're listening to this, you're not special. Your life is a series of uneventful, normal, boring moments. Be grateful for that. My God. If everything was epic all the time... No, that's not sustainable. That's lying to yourself. The people who go on Instagram and post, oh my God, I just left the most perfect wedding with the most perfect bride. It's the most perfect sunset. Fuck you, dude. Fuck you. That is creating a distance between yourself and whoever is unlucky enough to follow you. You shouldn't communicate pretend perfection. You should communicate your vulnerabilities so that people can empathize and see something of themselves in you. And you get that by doing what Carrie does, asking good questions, right? Being curious, maintaining this posture of otherness, right? Happiness isn't about feeling good. Happiness is about solving other people's problems. There's an Indian word, in, in the Prati language, uh, called mudita. It's finding, uh, finding pleasure in other people's successes. It's like the opposite of envy. It's the opposite of jealousy. And when you can help those people solve those challenges, and you can be part of that narrative, even if it's just creating the safe space to listen, as Carrie does so well, that's transformational. And that, that's, that's meaning. That's connection. That's purpose. 
uh, right? Resilient people are people that have a purpose. They have a North Star they're chasing. Be less shitty tomorrow. Solve other people's problems. If that's your purpose in life, then you will weather that next storm. See, I'm, I'm the gratitude guy, right? That's what they call me. But I'll be the first to admit, I'm not the gratitude rosy rosy, let me talk about how grateful I am for the sun and the good things in life. I'm grateful for the shitty things in life because the grateful processing of those unpleasant memories destigmatizes the impact that negative emotion has over me, rewires my brain to broaden and build the thought action repertoire needed for hope, pride, optimism, self-confidence, self-advocacy. That's resilience because I have a purpose of being there for others and showing that gratitude. And maybe you can't show that gratitude all the time because someone's died or you don't talk to that person anymore. Great. Gratitude's not just about paying it back. It's about paying it forward, which has an upward reciprocal cycle that's contagious and it just fucking spirals. I look back on my life and I never say, oh, I'm so grateful for this amazing thing that I did really well. I learned so much. It is literally from every single thing I screwed up, every mistake I made, every person I hurt and, you know, being accountable to my response, my actions, my behaviors, and learning from it to be a less shitty person tomorrow, like that is what I'm grateful for because I wouldn't be here today. I think back to all of the stupid decisions I made and the people I hurt and like really, really bad things that happened. And I am like, thank God they happened. I am grateful for it. Mm-hmm. And so that so resonates with me. And I think that comes back like full circle to what you started with, right? Great leaders have to balance self-confidence and humility. And that's what it is when you're like, I know that I am a shitty human and I'm just trying to get better and I'm here to help other people. Uh, and I believe that I can do it and keep step moving forward. That's how you find it. And it's just much a much more raw way to put it, like right there in your face. Yep. I love you. <laughs> we can be, we can forever <laughs> let's do it i'm i'm here bffs <laughs> I'm, I'm not going anywhere i know you're in your bubble <laughs> all right so i want to know what you think about reflecting forward since that's the name of this podcast what does reflect forward mean mm-hmm. in the world of positive psychology there are only two things that have a lasting impact after a positive psychology microintervention Mindfulness and gratitude. In order to prepare someone for gratitude, I have to do a little foreplay. I have to bring them into the present. The reality of life is that most people are walking around right now nervous, anxious, cautiously overwhelmed. They are miserable. Uh, We can prove it. We have all the data from our virtual gratitude experiences. People feel like shit. And in order to snap them out of that, we have to shake them out of their busy, productive, unfulfilled life. So first, get someone into the present. Then you get to ask them some gratitude stuff, which is the tool to get into the past. Why is that important? It makes these lonely people pause and connect the dots 
backwards. As Steve Jobs says, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. But in diving into the past and processing what you've been through and bringing it into part of your story, you can find connection with others that builds the resilience amongst communities and enduring personal resources to carry forth, forward. Uh, the hope, the pride, and the optimism that comes from processing shitty shit from your past and realizing you can get through it, that's how you look ahead to tomorrow. That and that in itself. So reflecting back to look ahead to the forward with renewed self-confidence. I love that answer. Great job. You nailed it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I mean, when, look, when like when when Ben, Ben, if you're listening to this, I hope you still uh, invite me into your home with your wonderful children, even after hearing all my dirty laundry secrets and curse words. Um, but oh, we, I think you still have more dirty laundry and secrets. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even begun. Um, <laughs> that's for a campfire between the three of us. Um, but when Ben connected us and I realized that your thing was on like reflecting forward, like I could have just like, you could have been just a horrible person and I would have like just accepted whatever we were going to do together because of reflecting forward in itself. Like it's what I talk about every freaking meeting. Before we wrap up, tell us about your book and your podcast. So y'all will be the first to know that there's a second book in the works. And I'll talk about that one. Um, what we realized is that 2020 was a great opportunity to teach people that it's through hardship and hard work that creativity grows and flourishes. It's when you can go through difficult times together that you come out with greater meaning, connection, purpose, and long-lasting relationships than you can shake a stick at. But you need the tools to do it right. And giving gratitude through hard times sounds like a pretty good tool. So this second book is all about resilience. It's all about giving gratitude to hard times. It's all about poking holes in everything you've learned prior to this moment. We're saying fuck you to positivity gurus who just want to clear your limiting beliefs. You know, all those Los Angeles Uber driver, Reiki practitioner, actor, uh, psychotherapist, whatever they are, fuck them, right? Fuck self-help. Fuck your gratitude journal. Fuck writing down shit that you're positively grateful for, scientifically proven is actually bad for you. You should just ruminate on that shit. Um, like, we're going like this to a lot of things. And then we're giving an example of how this gratitude question can lead to growth and healing through grief in community. Um, and yeah, it, it should be fun. So when that's, well, uh, the good news about self-publishing is whenever the fuck we write it. Uh, no, we, we um, Car Carrie and I share a, a, a dear collaborator in common, Sarah Stibitz, who wrote our first book with us. And Sarah and Brianne, and Madeline and I, we have four people on our writing team. We meet once a week. 
we drive each other crazy. At one point, Sarah said, I feel like I'm talking to someone who's been tripping acid for 18 months. I'm like, nah. <laughs> we'll figure it out one day. But anyways, we're, we're, um, we, we talk out our book together and, and, you know, we're on about the second chapter. So we got a long ways to go, but there's been some really groovy things that pop out. And, and, you know, the best part about writing a, a book is that you realize, you know, through all the research, you realize you don't know shit and it's a great humbling process. So yeah, excited yeah. for that. I mean, everything yeah. that we're going to do from here on out for the rest of these, you know, next 11 months is geared towards that book. It's our virtual gratitude experiences to now so that they'll be book readers later. You know, that that's the whole thing. So the, the couple hundred experiences we'll produce this year, whether they're free or not free, are all building this big B2B. We've already got a great big B2B community, but it's all just building and building and building for that launch um, to really help people poke some holes. Good. Well, I want an early copy and oh, I'll, yeah. uh, I'll help you. Yes. And I love Sarah. She is my accountability buddy and getting my book written. So thank you for that introduction. She's amazing. So fun. I know. I know. All right. And tell us about your podcast. Podcast. 747 Conversations, kind of known as Founders Giving Gratitude. We have um, great people like Carrie come on to share some amazing stories of the obstacles they had to overcome, you know, to get here. It's essentially all about reflecting forward. <laughs> it's um, we we bring on everyone from uh, venture back founders mid-market CEOs, publicly traded founders, all those kind of groovy folks to not talk about work, not talk about their go-to-market strategy, but just to give us a little glimpse on who helped them get to where they are today and why that inspired or affected their leadership style. We've had some amazing conversations. Yeah, it's a great show. I enjoy listening to it very much. All right, final question. Well, we enjoyed having you on it. Are you kidding? We, you. Should, we sent that to Ben, and Ben was all teary-eyed. Yeah. <laughs> you got a great story, Carrie. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I don't know if it's unique, but it's mine. <laughs> it doesn't have to be unique. You know, the, 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 the less unique your story can be, well, the less you can pretend like your story is unique. Mm-hmm. the better off people will be in finding connection in your story, right? Yeah. We, we've all got a mission, uh, but it's our story that does make us unique, but it's also what connects because the characters we talk about in our stories, we all have those same characters. It's like yeah. William Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, right? There, there's only, everybody's got a, a mom, a dad, a neighbor, a stranger, a friend, whatever, whether or not those people are still in their lives, that's what makes the story unique, but the character is relatable, and the characters you talked about on that podcast made Ben cry. Yeah. yeah. That's a really great way to put it. I mean, it, for those of you who are listening, this Ben character that we're talking about, he happens to be the founder and CEO of America's fourth fastest growing company. He's a pretty good dude. 
he's awesome. Ben and Wright, he, go and, listen to that episode of Reflect and, Forward. It's amazing. <laughs> and he he is successful because he's vulnerable as a leader. Why yeah. I quantified his success is to say this isn't just some like you know blondie and boulder and some short white dude in New York City talking about this stuff. Some of the most powerful people on the planet subscribe to this exact same. This gratitude question made Bill Gates cry. Yeah. I watched it. Yeah. This you can use with anybody, these principles, to get anything you want in life. It, it's, it's, in the book, we talk about the negotiation tactics around gratitude. Right? Our buddy Chris Voss wrote a book called Never Split the Difference, How to Negotiate as if Your Life Depends on It. The whole thing is tactical empathy. And, and we think that you should lead with gratitude, get to empathy, in with gratitude, and you can get anything you want, guaranteed. So if someone wants to do a gratitude experience with you, how do they find you? Uh, LinkedIn is good. Just reach out to us on LinkedIn um, or email us, info at 747club.org. Um, even if you just want to come to one of our virtual gratitude experiences, you know, we... We have to produce the ones that we produce for our clients to pay the bills, but then we get to host w once a month a free experience for our community. And, you know, if anything that resonated today, if you feel lonely, if you feel hungry, if you feel the way I felt in Rome driving around in that car realizing you're not leaving your dream, reach out. We'd love to have you there as our guest. Now, I think it's macroeconomically unsustainable for everybody to quit their 9-to-5 to pursue a life of passion. I don't wish that on anybody. But we could probably help you sleep better at night realizing uh, that you didn't thank your dad before he died and it's you know not too late to pay that forward. That's it. Sounds awesome. good. Sounds good. I love it. I'm a believer. Uh, it was a great experience for us, and I can't wait to do more. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Chris. It was uh, everything I hoped it would be. And more. And less. <laughs> no, and more and more. <laughs> <laughs> we need to figure out how not to get more in our life. We need to scale down our lives, I feel like. I know. We need to, we need to do a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> I literally just got an email response from Sarah Stibitz telling her, I need to coin that phrase, scale down your gratitude. See, gratitude isn't like giving gratitude to these like epic life moments. It's like, all right, you had an epic life moment. Give gratitude to the one small thing that happened 23 years ago that started the chain reaction for that to occur. Give gratitude to that one thing. So we're calling it scale down your gratitude. I love it. I love it. I can't wait to read the book. So good. Me too. Ooh. All right. <laughs> we can talk forever. Uh, but I know you have a happy hour to get to, and I have my son's baseball game. <laughs> so fun. Hit a, hit a, hit a touchdown. Yeah, that's not what you do in baseball. Damn it. <laughs> All right. They'll let me on the field one day. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Chris. Hang tight, everybody. I'll be right back. All right. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that crazy and wild ride. And uh, and please do check out the Gratitude Experience. Go to his website, uh, 747club.org, and, and, and reach out to him. It is absolutely worth doing.
All right, that is it for today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate. It's always very helpful to me. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Take care.